Hey everyone, and welcome back to What About Therapy? This is part two on cognitive distortions. I'm your host, Enoch Fossum. I'm currently going to school to become a licensed marriage and family therapist. And in this episode, we're going to talk about the last five of the 10 cognitive distortions that we started talking about in the first episode. So if you haven't heard part one, it'll do you good to go ahead and pause this one, go listen to part one, and then come back to this episode because some of the cognitive distortions that we talk about in part one in detail are also mentioned in this episode as well. And so you'll be able to stick with us and know exactly what we're talking about. All that coming up next on What About Therapy? All right, you guys, I am super excited to continue talking about cognitive distortions today. So before we get right into it, let's kind of make a quick recap. And so remember that the word cognitive is just a fancy pants word for a thought or for thinking. And so cognitive distortions will be distorted thoughts. And so David Burns, he... So he says this about cognitive distortions. He says they're interpretations that we make about what's happening, and they are twisted and misleading, but we don't realize it. And so that's what cognitive distortions are. They're a highly misleading way of thinking about yourself and the world. It's a way of fooling yourself. And when you feel depressed and anxious, you will nearly always be fooling yourself. This means that your negative thoughts do not reflect reality. And depression and anxiety are the world's oldest cons. And so um, last episode, we talked about the first five cognitive distortions, which are all or nothing thinking, overgeneralization, mental filtering, discounting the positive, and jumping to conclusions, which include mind reading and fortune telling. And so here in this episode, we're going to cover the last five. And the first one that we're going to talk about is called magnification and minimization, kind of a tongue twister. So for magnification, that's when you exaggerate the negativity and you minimize the positive. And so magnification plays a big role in anxiety. So for example, one thing that I um, magnify a lot in my life is the ocean. So I think So growing up, I watched a lot of Shark Week and probably too much Shark Week for my own good because I've been to the ocean maybe like four times now in my life and I've only gone ankle deep every single time. I do not dare to go any deeper than that. And people are like, why don't you just go, you know, knee deep? Like, no way. Because there was an episode that I watched where this kid was fishing in the ocean, just uh, calf deep. And this shark came up and bit his calf off. And so I'm like, no way. I am not going calf deep. Ankle deep I can deal with because I think I should be able to see a shark ankle deep if he is trying to nibble at my nibble at my ankles and eat those off. So that's a, just a simple example of a magnification. And so I magnify the possibility of me getting eaten by a shark or getting bitten by a shark, which I think last time I looked, I think you're more... Let's see, you can, I think you can get, ah, what's the word? You, the chances are higher that you die by a refrigerator falling on you than you are getting eaten by a shark. And so those odds are, you know, obviously super, super low that you 
will get bitten by a shark while in the ocean. But because I magnify the situation, it makes it 10 times worse. And so when even a hundred times worse, I'd say. So when I go into the ocean, when I'm at the ocean, um, I'm magnifying that feeling of, oh my gosh, like I could be eaten by a shark. I'm not going anywhere near the water when there are people out there swimming and surfing in the ocean, you know? And um, so for example, like another simple one that David Burns uses in his book. And again, this is going off the book, Feeling Great. Um, It's David Burns' most recent book. And so here he talks about how um, if someone has anxiety about flying, um, and that's probably more common than with the ocean, right? I don't know, maybe. But um, so like the odds of you getting in a plane crash are super, super low. He says you have to fly every day for about 600 years for you to be in significant danger (laughs) of the plane crashing. And last time I I heard there's, um, I was talking to this guy who's a pilot and he said that in order for a plane to become certified, it has to be able to run on one engine, like fly on one engine. And so if one goes out, which is already a super, super low possibility, it can still fly and get to ground safely because it can still fly in one engine, which is crazy. But people that have anxiety about flying, um, they you know, obviously magnify the possibility of the plane crashing. And I don't know about you, but I my mind tends to go there as well, like on a plane, like when you hit turbulence, um, your mind instantly magnifies it. And like, oh my gosh, we're going down. We're all going to die. But in reality, it's just a little bit of wind and everything is okay. So that's magnification. And that's a lot, a lot of the time where panic attacks come from. And so, for example, when you misinterpret bodily sensations like dizziness or tightness in your chest, or the other day, actually, I had um, like left shoulder pain. And I think that's a thing when like a symptom of having a stroke or something. And so my mind instantly instantly went to that, like, oh my gosh, I'm going to, I'm having a stroke, but I just kind of laid there. I don't know where I was. I think I was just lying in bed, but I'm fine. I did not have a stroke, (laughs) you know, like that's just a pain that sometimes randomly happens. Same thing with dizziness or tightness. That's, they're also related to having a heart attack. And so people who struggle with anxiety Um, They instantly go to, they instantly magnify those thoughts. And so they're like, oh my gosh, my my chest is tight. Or when you have um, like lactic acid buildup or you have, um, dang, what's what's the word? The thing you use Tums for, is that lactic acid? (laughs) Anyway, when like you're having a heartburn, you know, you're like, oh my gosh, I'm having a heart attack, but you're not. It's just a normal occurrence that happens sometimes in your body every so often. So that's magnification. I think you guys can all get the point now where you magnify a situation that really there's no threat, but there's a very small possibility of of a threat and you magnify that. And so minimization is the exact opposite. So you tell yourself that something isn't important when it really is. And minimization can also lead to um, all or nothing thinking, 
So for example, when like I'm a huge, huge gym goer, I try to go to the gym as often as I can, excuse me. And when I minimize those efforts, so like, oh, I went to the gym today and you know, there's a phrase 1% better or 10% better. You minimize that percent, you minimize that effort that you put in and you don't make it seem significant when it really is. You know, if you go, if you go to the gym every day over time, that builds up obviously, and you start to see results. But if you minimize it saying, oh, it's like, it's not even a big deal. It's, you know, it's worthless. Then that can, um, lead you to all or nothing thinking where you don't see progress. And so you are a failure or, um, yeah, that's a good example. So magnification, you magnify the situation to, um, you go to the worst possible scenario and minimization is when you don't pay any significance or don't pay any attention or you don't give yourself rewards for those small wins like going to the gym or reading every day or slowly working on a school project. Um, things, things like that. So the next is emotional reasoning. So this involves reasoning from the way you feel such as, so this is what David Burns says. This is his example. So such as I feel like an idiot, so I must be one, or I feel hopeless. So things are never going to get better. Or in the case of panic attacks, I feel like I'm on the verge of a nervous breakdown so I must be in a lot of danger. Um, so for, for a long time, uh, mental health professionals have told patients to get in touch with their feelings, you know, and kind of think of the way you feel. Um, and that's, that's what creates reality. But David Burns says that sometimes uh, those those feelings that we have create a false reality. You know, like if you think you're a loser or you feel like a loser, so you must be one. Um, you know, so if you think you're a loser, oh, sorry, I got to put the password back on my computer. It timed out. Okay, back in business. Um, so a lot of these feelings can create a false reality, and so they also create a false way of thinking. So, and I think that's very interesting. So if you if you pay attention to uh, just to the way you feel sometimes, and see if that can also change the way you think, to where you feel embarrassed. So you must have done something um, silly or dumb that everyone saw. And that can also lead to different distortions like um, mind reading. You know, you think that everyone thinks you're a fool or, or something like that. But there's a lot of different ways that this could go. And so yeah, so sometimes your 
feelings will not reflect reality. And the example that David Burns gives is it's like the curved mirrors you see in an amusement park that create distorted, distorted images of how you look. So I really like that. All right, the next is should statements. And there's a lot of things that we can talk about with should statements. It can be its own episode, and it probably will be sometime in the future. But one of my favorite phrases is, no one likes to be should on. I've, I've heard that several times, and it's totally true. If you think back to when someone has told you that you should do something, there's kind of that instant reaction where your mind says, no, I don't. You know, I don't have to do that. Like, you should go to the gym. And you say, no, I don't. I don't need to. <laughs> and so when you should on other people, sometimes that creates an instant neg negative thought with that person that you just should on. And they instantly have, like, they instantly start, uh, like, rebelling or doing the opposite of what you said. Um. So with should statements, you criticize yourself or others with shoulds, shouldn'ts, mustn'ts, ought to's, and have to's. And so here in should statements, there are different kinds of should statements. So the first one is self-directed shoulds, which can lead to feelings of guilt and inferior inferiority. So let's see here, for example, like, I, when you say, oh, I shouldn't have messed up, or, or for example, in my last episode, remember when I talked about um, asking that girl to dance with me, and then afterwards I felt like a total buffoon, and I applied that, that uh, moment to my life, um, I overgeneralized it. That's overgeneralization to where she said no, so I'm unlovable. And so with that, that can also bring self-directed shoulds like, oh my gosh, I shouldn't have asked her to dance with me. What am I thinking? I'm so dumb. And so you see how it kind of creates a chain reaction. Some of these, if not a lot of these, are all of these cognitive distortions are connected in their own ways. And so they can kind of create that chain reaction. And so self-directed shoulds, I shouldn't have messed up, or I shouldn't have asked her to the dance. The next one is other-directed shoulds. And these should statements create frustration, anger, arguments with other people. Like, um, you know, they shouldn't have done that, or they shouldn't have said that. And so it's when other people don't meet our expectations. We kind of, we tend to should on them. So like, oh, like they shouldn't have done that, you know? So I'm, I'm sure all of you can think of situations in your life where um, you've, you've should on other people. And, um, and I think I would, I would challenge you guys to think about those situations and think about how you can change the phrase instead of shooting on them. You, you just change the word. Like maybe ask them instead of, oh, you shouldn't have done that. You could give a suggestion like, well, here's an option that you could have done instead, but you chose this option, you know, and it led to this. And so different, if you just change the phrase, change the sentence, it can, um, it can make the world of difference.
So those are other directed shoulds. The next is world directed shoulds. And this is when the world doesn't meet your expectations. And so this can meet, this can lead to anger, um, like to humanity or anger to the world, anger to um, the government, you know? So things, so when the world doesn't meet your expectation, like, oh, traffic shouldn't be this bad or the weather shouldn't be like this. You know, all those just create anger within yourself and it directs it towards towards the world. And the last should statement is hidden shoulds. And so hidden shoulds, they're not expressed explicitly, David Burns says, with terms like should, ought, or must, but they're amplified by your negative thoughts and feelings. So, for example, if you berate yourself whenever you make a mistake, you're essentially telling yourself that you should be perfect and should never goof up. And I think that is one of the most common ones. I don't know about you guys, but that's that's a, a really common one for me. Um, when you tell yourself that, oh, you can do better, or come on, you shouldn't have messed up. You're really telling yourself that you should be perfect. Why aren't you perfect? You're always messing up. Stop goofing up. And those can also lead to um, just other negative feelings and thoughts. Um, just like, you know, all or nothing thinking where, oh, you made one mistake. That means you're not making progress. That means you're a total failure. And so those are hidden shoulds. It's not, doesn't come out in, oh, I shouldn't have done this. It's, oh, like I could have done better or why didn't you do better? Um, those are, those are hidden shoulds. And so those are all should statements. And the next one we're going to talk about here is labeling. So labeling is an extreme form of overgeneralization. So you capture the essence of yourself or others with one word like, so words like jerk, liar, idiot, klutz. So for jerk, instead of saying, I was mean to that person, you label yourself and say, I'm a jerk. Or same thing directed towards others. He was mean, so he's a jerk. Or I didn't tell the truth, so I'm a liar. Or they didn't tell the truth, they're a liar. And then there's, I made a mistake, so I'm an idiot, or I'm a klutz. And this happens really often um, in, in your everyday life, in people's everyday life, where, like, let's say you, you see someone in a store yelling at their kid, and you say, oh, like they're a bad parent, and you label them. Yet you didn't see what was happening behind the scenes. You know, they were patient all day. They're normally a patient parent. They're normally very loving. And just so happens that the moment you saw them, they just kind of made a mistake and they raised their voice um, talking to their kid. And so you label that person off of that one event as a, a jerk to their kid or as a bad parent. And so that can also go with like he says, overgeneralization, just to kind of a more extreme. And so one thing he talks about here is in labeling how it can be, he talks about how it can be used for power. 
And so, for example, he says, labeling is very common in political and religious battles. For example, we may label people who disagree with us politically as lefties or righties. That's that's really um, um, uh, what would you say? You can really relate that to today, <laughs> especially now. And then he goes on to say that Hitler used this type of labeling to achieve power in Germany when he described Jewish people and others as rats and identified Aryan people as being part of the superior race. And so I thought that was very interesting that we can use labeling to make ourselves feel superior by labeling others and making them feel inferior. And you can also make yourself feel inferior by labeling yourself, by overgeneralizing things and labeling yourself as a jerk or as a liar or as an idiot. And so all those things, all those, um, those labels play into, play into labeling. And so you can either use it for, I guess either way it's bad. <laughs> if you label others to make yourself feel, feel superior or you label yourself to make yourself feel um, inferior. And I mean, you could also label yourself as, you know, like you said, Hitler labeled the Germans um, superior, the Aryan people. And so labeling can go a lot of different ways. So the next here, we're going to talk about self-blame and other blame. So self-blame is when, well, let's see, first of all, just blaming in general. So self-blame and other blame is when you find fault in other people or yourself instead of solving the problem or identifying true causes of the problem. So for example, with self-blame, you blame yourself for something that wasn't entirely, it's nothing you're entirely responsible for. And so, for example, when you lose on a sports team, for example, you a lot of people tend to blame themselves for losing, yet it's a team sport. It's a team effort. And so you shouldn't need to blame yourself for losing. You should, I don't know, you should blame the team. It was all of your faults. If you could, um, if you worked better as a team, if everyone maybe did better, then you would have won, but it's not your fault specifically. Yeah, sure, maybe you made a couple mistakes, but you didn't lose simply because you made those mistakes. Or um, a common self-blame as well is when someone you know happens to commit suicide. You, and maybe looking back on it, you see how they were maybe giving you signs or um, maybe keywords or something kind of hinting at that. And you look back on that after they've taken their life and you say, man, I could have done better. I like, it's my fault. I didn't recognize the signs they were giving. I didn't say anything. I didn't do anything. So it's my fault. When in reality, it's not. Um, and so self-blame can lead to a lot of, um, a lot of depression when you take on, um, 
you take on failure that isn't really your fault, but you take it on as 100% your fault, that can create a lot of depression. And um, that also can create a lot of different chain reactions and all of these cognitive distortions. So the next is other blame. So this is when you overlook the way you may have contributed to a conflict and you blame the other person. And so this is, uh, so yeah, in a sense, when you use other blame, you're really saying that it's always their fault and it's never my fault. I have no flaws. You know, I get it right all the time. It's never my fault. And this is a really big problem with narcissism. And narcissists, they they think that, you know, everything is about them. It's never their fault. They never do anything wrong. And um, so narcissists use other blame a lot. And so other blame can also cause a lot of problems in marriages like arguments. So, for example, if you're in an argument, just take a step back and evaluate it and look at what you could have contributed to help prevent the situation that you're currently in or what you did contribute that you aren't taking accountability for that kind of started that argument. Does that make sense? And so a lot of the times you'll see that you're, you were blaming your spouse or the person you're in an argument with um, for all the problems and you're not looking at what you did that maybe caused a problem or you're not looking at what you could have done to prevent the situation, to prevent the problem. All right, you guys, so that is it for the 10 cognitive distortions that we're going to talk about. So let's do a quick recap. So we first talked about magnification and minimization. Magnification is when you exaggerate the negatives, like my experience with the ocean and sharks. I, I'm still not going to go into the ocean to this day. Maybe in the future, but right now, no, I don't think so. Then minimization is when you minimize the positives in your life and they're not that big of a deal. Like you, like the small wins, it's not, it's not a big deal. You minimize that. And then there's emotional reasoning. So if you feel like an idiot, if you feel bad, you must be bad. You must be an idiot. If you feel sad, you must be depressed. Then there are should statements. You just got to remember, don't should on yourself and don't should on other people because no one likes to be should on. And there's so there's self-directed shoulds, other directed shoulds, world-directed shoulds, and then the hidden shoulds. The next is labeling, is when if you were mean to someone, you label yourself as a jerk. Or if someone didn't tell the truth, you label them as a liar. And so just because you were accidentally mean to someone, it doesn't make you a jerk. You're still you. And so try not to fall into the trap of labeling yourself from one event, just like overgeneralization. And then we have self-blame and other blame. So self-blame, when you blame yourself for something that wasn't entirely your fault or entirely... Um, something that you are entirely responsible for. And then you have other blame is when you overlook um, the ways you have contributed to a conflict or things that you didn't do that's causing a conflict and you just blame other people for everything. In a sense, you're saying that you're perfect and 
you don't have any flaws. And so that makes up the 10 cognitive distortions. And again, if you haven't heard the last episode, part one, go ahead and listen to that for the rest of the five. And so in these next uh, next couple episodes, we're going to be talking about tools that we can use to overcome these cognitive distortions. And so the first part, um, in order to overcome them, we have to recognize them. And so keep thinking about um, cognitive distortions that you may be struggling with, because we all do it. And in these next episodes, we're going to talk about how we can get rid of them and how we can actually use them for our good. And so if you got this far on the episode, thank you so much for listening. And I will see you guys next week. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. If you liked it, please leave a rating and review. That would mean the world to me. That's how I'll be able to reach and help as many people as I possibly can. You can also subscribe or follow to be notified when my future episodes come out. So thank you all so much for the support and I'll see you in the next episode. Peace.